Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Have you ever wondered if it might be time for the Bible Geek? I constantly wonder that, and today it is. I am, of course, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, here to uh, regale you with some uh, tentative answers to good questions. Let's say, let's uh, take a look at some goodies here. This is uh, from Jonathan. Greetings to the most excellent geek. I was having an argument with a cousin of mine a few days ago who was an ex-seminarian from a Dominican order of preachers but is now happily married to his wife and has two kids. Uh, During our discussions, I gotta say he did well in the seminary school because I was impressed by his grasp of Greek and Latin. When I brought up Justin Martyr and his Memoirs of the Apostles, I was surprised about what he told me, that even during seminary school, he had doubts about Julian's memoirs. He finds it sketchy, and even as a believing Catholic, he thinks Justin Martyr is quoting something else but none of the four Gospels, especially considering he doesn't name the Gospel he cites, and the authenticity of the memoirs falls apart when you read the dialogue with Trifo. Unfortunately, he decided not to raise that concern with his professors. Uh, When we started discussing the historical Jesus, or the lack thereof, that's the time we diverged. He insists that the catacombs are legitimate proofs of the historical Jesus, and the reason Jesus had a face is because the early Christians passed drawings of Jesus' face and that the ichthus, or Jesus' fish symbol, was the way for early Christians to hide from their pagan persecutors. What is the geek's take on the catacombs? Is it a valid archaeological evidence for the historical Jesus? I don't see how. In fact, uh, though I believe the earliest visual representations of Jesus are in the catacombs, as one especially, Jesus is depicted there as a beardless youth, and uh, those who know more about ancient art than I do, which is almost everybody, uh, say that uh, this is just the way Apollo was being pictured at the time. Uh, that, to me, suggests that uh, they didn't know what the heck Jesus looked like if there was a Jesus. It's the same thing with the description of Paul and what strikes us as an unflattering um, uh, manner in the Acts of Paul from the second century, where it says he was bow-legged, short, balding, bearded, uh, eyebrows meeting in the middle, big nose, and so forth. <clears throat> uh some have said, well, surely uh, this must be real tradition about Paul, because who would have made it up? I mean, if your hero is Paul, aren't you going to be tempted to do what they always do in these these uh, fundamentalist uh, pictures of uh, Jesus by Richard Hook, um, where uh, he makes Jesus like the founder of not so much of Christianity as the fellowship of Christian athletes, because he looks like a football player. <clears throat> 
uh, wouldn't you do something like that? And uh, so, um, yeah, that sounds good, the criterion of embarrassment, you'll notice. But uh, some point out, I think... um, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Abraham Mallerby in his book, Paul and the Popular Philosophers, a really fascinating collection of essays, that uh, this is just the way Odysseus was described, and uh, and he, he was a major hero among the Stoics, oddly enough. They liked his resourcefulness and so on, so that, and also Hercules was described that way, not exactly Steve Reeves. Um, and, uh, and, and so this was entirely compatible with a heroic portrait, and it's a little too much like the heroic portraits of Odysseus and Hercules. Uh, it's its formula. Uh, and uh, so I don't think that uh, any depiction of Jesus there is uh, evidence for historical Jesus of anything. It kind of falls on the other side of the, the, the scales, though it's proof of nothing one way or the other. Uh, the ichthus, uh, the, the fish, that's another interesting thing with possible pagan roots. Uh, ichthus was, was apparently borrowed by Christians from Pythagoreans, who already used it, uh, not in connection with Jesus, obviously, and it was a, a, a signal for a fellow brethren in the order to, uh, like to recognize a safe house and so on. But Christians understood it as uh, an acronym, uh, which uh, you know, Ichthus fish uh, it would be an acronym for Jesus Christos uh, Theou Huios Soter, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Well, uh, you know that uh, that is that just a coincidence. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it kind of reminds me, though, of a great Avengers comic from <clears throat> some years ago when Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, uh, supposedly reformed and cured, is now uh, given the job of head of security for the United States after he helped repel the, the Skrull invasion. Oh, man, what an epic that was. And... Uh, uh, he, uh, he so he he decides to revamp the whole security structure, and he forms a new kind of paramilitary force, uh, combining um, members of Hydra and Shield, and he calls the thing Hammer, and uh, he he tells one of his aides make up something for that to stand for, you know, just like they did in the comics, the writers of the comics with Shield, Supreme Headquarters International. Espionage and Law Enforcement Division, I think it was, or the Thunder Agents, uh, the Higher United Nations Defense and um, Espionage something or other, I don't know. Uh, and it, it, So it could be that they just came up with some good Christian-sounding stuff. And given the fact that the Pythagoreans already used it, I would have to sort of lean that way. But of course, who the heck knows? But in any event, uh, it doesn't really militate uh, for a historical Jesus. certainly doesn't uh, lessen the chances, um, even if it was borrowed from Pythagoras, right? Uh, what difference would that make? Yeah, uh, Jonathan goes on. Another concern I'd like to ask the geek about is Nazareth and the date of the Gospels. How does the absence of Nazareth in any first century contemporary writings, including Flavius Josephus, uh, whom, by the way, I um, 
I uh, in in some book or article or something a year or two ago, I did a section on Flavius Josephus. Uh, yeah, it was that uh, it was an appendix to uh, Killing History: Jesus in the No Spin Zone, and that section I called Flava Flavius. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Anyway, um, how does this relate to the late date of the Gospels? If Na- if Nazareth didn't exist ju- uh, just yet during the time Jesus lived, why would the Gospel writers pick a non-existent place to begin with? Uh, does the place Nazareth result uh, what the heck relate to cults like the Mandeans and Nazareans who are uh, Nazarene could refer to the Mandeans, or it could be another Jewish Christian group. Uh, well, uh, I think you just answered your own question, though there is a bit of a missing piece. As Rene Salm has argued, I think quite effectively, though Bard and some others just won't give his research the time of day. No credentials, you know. Um, he, he says that uh, you can... You can trace the uh, archaeological history of Nazareth over many, many centuries uh, using regular old archaeological method. He doesn't propose any new revolutionary one. And he says Nazareth on the the um, the basin or the plateau or whatever the heck it is um, goes back long, long ago as an inhabited settlement, but it was intermittent. There were times when nobody lived there, and it kind of looks like uh, that... Um, that uh, it did it wasn't an inhabited village during the time Jesus supposedly lived not only are there no literary references to it but uh also there there's no datable uh evidence in terms of coins pottery uh anything uh, th- that uh, from that time and he he Salm goes through one item after another that has been uh con- well dated to the time of uh the ministry of Jesus in in the gospels and shows that there's no definite way to date these things. I mean, there is a definite way. There's certain marks you look for with a lot of uh, artifacts, but there happen to be none that can be dated that specifically to the period of, uh, you know, uh, the first third of the first century. It's possible some of the stuff comes from there, but it's it's not at all clear. And so he says the burden of proof is on anybody that would say there was of Nazareth inhabited at the time. But equally, the evidence does show that Nazareth began to be resettled about 50 AD or CE. Uh, So there was an inhabited Nazareth, but uh, not demonstrably in the ostensible time of Jesus. And uh, this makes plenty of sense in terms of a a long uh, considered theory that Jesus the Nazarene in the Gospels didn't originally refer to Jesus who lived in Nazareth, Jesus who hailed from the, the village of Nazareth, uh, but ra- there is one place in early in Mark, which uh, Frank Zindler thinks is an interpolation, an interesting theory in its own right, but... um. 
virtually every time Jesus is called either the Nazarene or the Nazorean, and both are used in the Gospels, that uh, it, it originally meant Jesus, the member of, of the Nazarene order. But uh, as time went on, the gospel writers, Christians in general, thought it unbecoming for Jesus to have been an initiate in some sect as if somebody had anything to teach him, right? And um, so that uh, they decided, well, the name is too fixed in the tradition. What else could it mean? Well, there's a village called Nazareth. Could he have been from there? And uh, and so that's what you get. Though you you don't uh, have as much in the way of statements about a place called Nazareth in the Gospels as you might think, because it doesn't say in the Greek Jesus of Nazareth, right? It says Jesus the Nazorean or Nazarene, either spelling. And so it's a matter of how you want to translate it. Uh, and uh, in in the um, and in Mark and I think the others I'll have to look it up when Jesus is uh, uh, dissed in the synagogue it says he went back to his hometown or his home place it doesn't say Nazareth uh, and uh, that's uh, that's a little surprise to to some folks so uh, anyway uh, so it, it the whole theory is that. Uh, yeah, by the time of the gospel writers, Nazareth had, I mean, even on a pretty conservative dating of the gospels, there would have been a Nazareth and it would have been a natural um, inference for them to think, oh, the Nazarene, he must have been from Nazareth. Uh, so again, you can never prove it, but it's uh, the point is in dispute and cannot rightly be used as the prop of somebody's argument. Mm, let's see. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, who we got here? Uh, Jason Gertson, and from uh, New Westminster, British Columbia. Uh, in a recent podcast, some hoser asked about the claim that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Eh? He suggested that it was an odd claim, given all the people that Jesus raised, as well as those who were raised in the Old Testament. You seemed to agree that it was an oddity, so my question is, could this not be support for mythicism? It seems to me that the firstborn of the dead formula could be from earlier Christianity, where Christ's death and resurrection was in heaven. In such a Christianity, this would not have been an oddity or contradiction. What do you think? I had to think about this for a while, and suddenly, uh, it, uh, it, in fact, just about, 20 minutes ago as I was pulling out of the parking lot for one of my favorite deep fried uh, fish and fried chicken uh, restaurants here that, oh, now I get it. I know what he meant. Now, there are two reasonable explanations for this. The traditional one, I think, is that uh, Jesus is said uh, in to be the firstborn of the dead in, uh, in Colossians and the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, 
the, and it in both cases would seem to refer to the eschatological resurrection, resurrection morning, when the righteous will be transfigured because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, etc. And uh, they'll, they'll be transfigured into an angelic form. And uh, that uh, isn't the same thing as these reprieves from death that um, Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain and the daughter of Jairus, or uh, the Shunammites, Shulamite, whatever, uh, Shunammite's son, and and uh, others received earlier in the Bible, because there's no reason to think that these guys became superhuman and immortal once Jesus resuscitated them, especially since it's not even clear in most of those cases that the person was even supposed to really be dead. These stories are much like several others in the Hellenistic world where it's it's very similar, but it's explicit that the person was not dead yet, but most of the bungling physicians couldn't see it and nearly buried the poor bastard alive until Asclepiades, the physician, or, or whoever came along and said, hey, hold on just a second, this guy's not dead. Uh, and so, I mean, it is so much like it. And in fact, uh, there's uh, statements of Jesus, you know, Lazarus is not dead, he's just asleep. Or the widow of name, I mean, the uh, the daughter of Jairus. She's she's not dead. She's only asleep. Maybe they meant it. Uh, and uh, so it's not clear that those were even resuscitations, but even if they were, it's not like they've come back as these angelic transfigured beings. Now, I think that is a completely plausible explanation for the difference. Now, of course, Paul or the writer to Colossians and 1 Corinthians or whatever, they don't mention any stories of Jesus on earth raising the dead. They don't happen to mention any resurrections or resuscitations in the Old Testament either, which, of course, they might have known about. But um, uh, the uh, but even if they did know about it, you, you can well imagine that just wouldn't be the same thing. That would be more like snapping somebody out of a coma than uh, raising a corpse from the dead. Okay, the, now what you're suggesting is very fascinating as well. <clears throat> uh, if Wouldn't the lack of um, room made for Jesus having raised people from the dead imply that whoever calls him the firstborn of the dead knew of no such stories. And so the silence on that would be <clears throat> very much like the uh, the argument that uh, if the epistles are unaware of any teaching ministry of Jesus or any miracles of Jesus, that these things too must have been later additions to the Jesus story, and uh, that uh, not even an earthly existence of Jesus is implied really in what is said uh, in the uh, the epistles. So I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that would make a lot of sense as a mythicist argument. I don't think it's a knockdown argument, but it, it, it since it kind of fits with this, uh, this tapestry of other considerations, uh, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. That's very sharp-eyed of you, Jason. Terrific. Okay, from Tim Katora. I haven't heard from him in a little while, I think. His first question. Growing up in the Church of Christ, I was taught from my youth up the five steps of salvation. Um, uh, see, hear, believe, repent, confess, 
and be baptized, only full immersion counted. Later, a sixth step was added, live a good Christian life. What we were being saved from was hell, damnation, eternal punishment. We were appointed to the book of Acts for models of conversion because those accounts were about people being saved. The quotations below from the New American Standard are most of the prime examples of being saved in Acts. Uh, Pentecost Sermon uh, and with many other words, oh, sorry, uh, this is indirect discourse. Uh, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from these perverse generation. Acts 2 40. Um, Peter and silent John defend themselves before the Jewish rulers. Uh, and there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Peter reports on preaching to Cornelius. Um, and he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter Laurie, uh, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household, Acts 11, 13 through 14. The council in Jerusalem. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, Elsie, who was this? Uh, I guess it's Peter. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are, Acts 15, 1 and 11. The conversion of the Philippian jailer. Uh, and he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he says, Dad, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, uh, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts sixteen twenty nine 29-31. My question is, what did they think they were being saved from? I was taught that it was about being saved from, hey, Allah! Uh, but what did the people in these stories uh, feel the need to be saved from? Or what did the author, Polycarp, I think so, uh, think they wanted to be saved from? Would the original readers have understood uh, it was salvation from eternal damnation? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're not Luke, uh, Polycarp, whoever does not give us a detailed theological exposition but um, if he had something to do with the Gospel of Luke, you, you do have this the uh, rich man and Lazarus story where the rich man croaks and is uh, roasting in the barbecue pit of Hades. Presumably, he had something like that in mind. And also in Acts, Paul is uh, testifying to the Gospel before, uh, I don't know, was it Festus or one of these characters? and says that he believes, as his Pharisee buddies always have, in a resurrection of the dead, of the righteous to salvation, the wicked to uh, punishment, whatever it is. Um, and so it, it's not spelled out completely, but I think that, uh, yeah, they are talking about your post-mortem destiny. It would, uh, not theologically, you could look at it a different way. Like, 
Uh, oh man, who was it? No, it's not Karl Rahner. Uh, oh boy, some Catholic theologian. Uh, oh boy. I can't believe it. Uh, who said, well, we got to ask in every age what salvation is from. And he's sort of making room for a non-Marxist political theology. And Tillich says something similar, the method of correlation um, tells us we need to um, be able to pour the wine of the gospel into the wine skins of contemporary needs and questions and all that. But I, I don't think Acts has that in mind. They're still in the same ancient ballpark. Okay, then uh, second question. Revelation 1.1 from the New American Standard. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. I prefer the King James Version for this one, though. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, things which must shortly come to pass. How do the Christians who believe Revelation is describing events that are happening now or will happen in the future defend their theories and dogmas? Is it incorrect to interpret this verse as meaning that the book was meant for contemporary readers and therefore covered events that might happen in their near future? You betcha, Tim. Uh, that seems to me unquestionable, and no one would would even... No one would question that except for a, a theological excedrin headache, uh, right? Uh, they don't want to say the book of Revelation was a misfire, uh, that it was just as ridiculous as uh, this guy, somebody or other, Whissonant here in eastern North Carolina, who back in 1985 predicted that in October of that year, Christ was going to return, or several other people that are always thinking, oh, well, yeah, Jesus gave us certain clues and I've put the puzzle together and here's the date and, and they're wrong and they're disgraced. Or how about, of course, Harold Camping, right? Uh, he had the date and uh, and he was wrong. So what are you going to say? Uh, was he a true prophet or a false? Well, false, obviously. And uh, that doesn't mean he was like a secret agent sent by Satan uh, to lead people astray. He just uh, had a little too much confidence in his speculations. Uh, but you certainly would not say, oh, he was a true prophet. And uh, Christians don't want to have to say that the seer of revelation was uh, mistaken. Now, you, you can, I suppose, get out of this by saying, well, that was God's plan at the time. But just as the Olivet Discourse has Jesus saying, if the allotted days to the Great Tribulation had not been cut short, no human beings would have, would survive it. Uh, or in Second Peter, uh, everybody is saying, where was this promised coming ever since the the fathers of the church fell asleep everything's been the same day after day as it's always been oh <laughs> they uh they forget one thing as second peter says uh, that, uh, yeah, yeah, all right, it's been delayed, but uh, he's given you, a, he's, he's extended the deadline, right? He, he's not willing that any should perish, so he so wants you to repent and be saved, he's given you longer to do it. 
Now, suppose that were true. Well, it has a kind of a mythical view of, of God, right? Uh, who God has to uh, carefully follow what human beings do and revise his uh, plans in light of it and things like this. Uh, this is hardly the timeless uh, deity of St. Augustine. But uh, you see what that would mean. This would be a case of progressive revelation, and which is always a, a, a false uh, read to rest on. Because you're saying, yeah, the the Bible, the book of Revelation, did truly predict the soon coming end of the age, which because it was true at the time. That was the plan, but it was subsequently changed. Unfortunately, there's no real revelation to that effect. It's just events showed what was to happen and not to happen, right? Uh, and so that's uh, that's quite a price tag for that rationalization. This may be one of the reasons the Eastern churches uh, didn't like Revelation, didn't want it in the Bible for a couple of hundred years after the Western churches did. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't see any way around that. Uh, some uh, allegorizing uh, Protestants like uh, Arthur W. Pink uh, says that, uh, well, there was a contemporary meaning, but there's also one for the, the far future that, yeah, all right, if you want to say that 666 was Nero and, uh, and all that stuff, uh, yeah, that's fine, but that is irrelevant to us now. And in fact, uh, what uh, the others, how Lindsay and the others say, is also true that it's that it's liable to be an hour day. Boy, if you can do that, you can do anything. You're using the Bible as a ventriloquist dummy, as I like to say. Well, uh, the Bible is for uh, socialism or capitalism, isn't that right, Bible? Yeah, that's right, Bob. Uh, it's uh, you know the, you don't need the Bible anymore. You're the oracle. Okay, um, uh, let's see, uh, Charles Power, you remember him as a character from The Office, played by Idris, uh, Idris, uh, Elba, uh, I, at least I assume it's the same Charles Power, just kidding, uh, I was interested in your remarks on alcohol and scripture in the latest Bible Geek podcast, uh, let's see, a friend did a YouTube video uh, on what is apparently a Talmudically sanctioned tradition of <laughs> getting drunk <laughs> in the celebration of Purim. Uh, sounds like we're getting up to like, Otis Campbell as Christ figure here. Okay, uh, this caused me to reflect on incidents uh, of drunkenness in the Jewish scripture. I, I can think of two. And neither is there a reproach from the omniscient narrator t to the indulger. Uh, in uh, uh, in both the figures who are punished are those who find the <laughs> drunkenness inappropriate. We, we start with Noah, who got drunk and naked as soon as he made landfall. His kid, Ham, thought that this was pretty funny and let his brothers in on it. They, with obsequious respect for their inebriated dad, backed into his tent to put some clothes on him. Ham was cursed and became a beloved folk figure for defenders of slavery since he was considered the progenitor of Negroes, and thus slavery was supported by a curse in the good book. 
Well, of course, that that was an ancient view. Some of the rabbis thought that, uh, but of course, it's ludicrous. They're talking about a whole different group of people, um, uh, the uh, the Canaanites and so on and so on. Uh, next, there's Lot, who's apparently excused for impregnating his two daughters because, well, they got him drunk. Uh, this, to me, is the most infuriatingly misogynistic tale in scripture, but that's another story. A dad knocks up both his daughters, and it's their fault. If he were so drunk he couldn't recognize them, how could he have the vigor needed f for the deed? I've often wondered the same. So while there may be objections to drunkenness in Proverbs, it's the objectors who come off badly in the stories. Not that we should follow in drunkenness any more than we should bring back slavery, because contrary to many abolitionists, is considered okay in Scripture. Whether or not the Hebrews ever thought this had any connection to Ham. Well, uh, the Lot and his daughters thing is really just an ethnic joke uh, at the expense of the two kindred groups uh, that were nonetheless at enmity with the ancient Israelites, uh, the uh, Moabites, the descendants of Maab, and the Ammonites, the descendants of Ben-Ami, and uh, son of my people. Uh, and so this is, uh, it isn't really a condemnation explicitly of either the father or the daughters. It's just saying, what a mess, look at this white trash, uh, disgusting spectacle. Well, and there you go, that explains the Ammonites and the Moabites, while they're such degenerate half-wits. Right, that is a slur, but it's, it just takes the drunkenness for granted, as you're saying. I don't think it's criticizing anybody who criticizes drunkenness. Uh, the, the Noah thing, that is, uh, based on the Titans turning on, uh, on, uh, Uranus, uh, castrating him and overthrowing him. Um, but even if you take it the way you did with Ham being cursed, for what? Noticing Noah's drunkenness? That really is not uh, directly a criticism of Noah being bombed, right? It's uh, Somehow it has to do with uh, the impropriety of his seeing his father naked, and presumably it would have been the same thing if he'd have walked in on him in the shower. Uh, and, uh, of course, there's a big element missing. Uh, what did he do? Uh, did he just see him? Well, no, nah, that, that must have been rewritten because of the disgusting character, what he actually did, namely castrate him in concert with his brothers. Yeah, boy, weird stuff. Um, Frank Frost in Kirkland, Washington. Uh, let's see. I'm originally from Utah, but lived in Minnesota for a while. I miss the accent and the people there. A Fargo-esque Minnesota accent would be perfect if the geek can conjure one. Well, of course, who knows if that's what I'm actually doing, but I'll try. Uh, I was reading through Mark S. Smith's book, Don't You Know? Uh, the Early History of God, where he mentions the Babylonian diaspora and its impact on the Second Temple Judaism. From my understanding, the in the Babylonian diaspora, the um, you mean of Jews, right? The exile, yeah, I think so. Uh, the Hebrew religion had a major shift from a polytheistic Canaanite religion to the monotheistic Yahweh cult. 
Uh, I understand this was the result of cultural fusion and influence. Uh, was there was any of that transition made in an effort to make the Hebrew captives more acceptable to the monotheistic Babylonians? Uh, if yes, can we also see Christianity as an effort to make the Second Temple Judaism into something more acceptable to the Romans? For example, doing away with the dietary laws and circumcision. Well, I see the um, the uh, transformation of Judaism in the wake of the exile in slightly different terms, uh, but uh, not too far from what you're saying. I think that... Um, Basically, when the Persian authorities who had taken over from the Babylonian Empire sent Ezra, Nehemiah, or whoever it is they symbolize, uh, to um, rebuild the temple and, and uh, enforce the, the Torah, that what they were doing here and probably elsewhere in their empire was to Zoroastrianize the native religions, uh, which would have resulted in a streamlining of the old Canaanite polytheism into some kind of um, monotheistic or ditheistic um, kind of faith. I, I'm a little hesitant on that because the documents of Zoroastrianism are such a mess. It's difficult to know what direction their religion evolved in over many centuries. At, at one point, uh, Ahura Mazda and Ahriman were the sons of Zervan, uh, the, uh, the lord of eternal time. Uh, in another, uh, Ahriman and, uh, boy, spent a mine you or yeah, we're, I think we're uh, sons of Ahura Mazda. Uh, and uh, in another, there's just Ahura Mazda with seven archangels who were sort of hypostases of his. So it's a little tough to tell, but it, it, there were certainly these features of Zoroastrianism that don't appear prior to the exile in Judaism, but do afterward, like a future resurrection of the dead, a messiah who would raise the dead, a dispensational periodization of history, uh, and a complex angelology, and, and so forth. So I think basically you have, um, uh, in post-exilic Judaism, a, uh, a Zoroastrian influence almost to the point of replacement of the, of traditional Israelite religion uh, and uh, and not all accepted it but those who did were known as Parsis Persians denoting Zoroastrians and that was the original denotation of Pharisees uh, so I, I think that uh, that wasn't exactly just a way of uh, making them smell better to some people it was more like religious imperialism. Now, but that has nothing to do, on the other hand, with the um, the Romanizing of Christianity, uh, of Christianity. I mean, uh, because it, it surely seems, even almost explicitly in in the New Testament, that the doing away with the Torah for Christians and uh, lack of circumcision and all that was a way to make it easier for non-Jews to become Christians. 
uh, in the Pauline epistles, it's theologized, but I think it's still pretty clear. He's saying, look, why should these Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? I mean, weren't Jews always uh, happy to draw the distinction Gentiles aren't going to hell, but they're uh, they're liable to wickedness because they live without the the uh, the covenant with uh, Yahweh, and uh, they don't have sacrifices to remove the ritual pollutions they engage in. Uh, but there can be righteous Gentiles, and God is pleased with them. But He's not even asking them to keep all the Torah regulations. Those are a kind of a fence to keep Israel unpolluted, un, un uh, uh, compromised with Gentile religions. And uh, so, I mean, it wasn't bigotry or anything. It's just as it is today in conservative and Orthodox Judaism. Uh, it's not immoral to eat a ham sandwich. We don't look down for not at non-Jews for eating ham sandwiches and so on. It's just that uh, these are the things that help define our behavior as the covenant people, uh, and uh, so on and so on. Well, Paul says, if that's true, then what is the problem with uh, these these ex-pagans who become Christians still not being uh, Jews, uh, still not keeping all those laws? Uh, you never thought the Gentiles had to. So why should that change? So, and now, of course, uh, the more uh, conservative critics of Pauline Christianity said, "You just—it's just cheap grace," as Bonhoeffer would call it. Look, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and doesn't Isaiah say that uh, when the New Age comes, that the the Gentiles will flow into Jerusalem to learn the Torah? You, you, well, yeah, that was a legitimate point too. But the argument of Pauline Christianity was basically an unabashed statement that uh, there's no reason to set up stumbling blocks to, to make Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. So that you know, does make a lot of sense. Um, okay. Uh, thank you, Frank. Uh, here's one from Tim. I'm not sure if this is Tim Kotora or not. Um, I have one general nagging question. If Jesus began as a non-Jewish myth, why such an effort to make Jesus Jewish in the Gospels? Why make him a Jewish Messiah? I can understand the effort to anchor a mythical figure in history in order to give one's doctrinal views some greater authority than others. But why explicitly Jewish? Do you think the myth originated as a Jewish myth, or was it a Gnostic myth that became popular among... Uh, a certain Jewish sect or various Jewish sects. Uh, impossible to say. It would make sense with any of those readings, but let's go on. When I compare the historical and the mythical theories about Jesus, I honestly feel torn. On the one hand, much of what is said about Jesus seems to fit well into first century Palestinian Judaism, based on what I've read and heard. But on the other hand, it also makes a lot of sense that if a new cult wanted to anchor their found founder in history, they likely would have used well-known patterns of the time and culture in order to make the story believable. I can also see how a fair amount of what is said by Jesus and others in the Gospels does not make much sense in a Jewish context, requiring a lot of post-hoc rationalization in order to make it sound Jewish. 
like the Last Supper being a Passover. Yeah, good luck with that one. So, in short, granting Jesus began as a myth, what is the myth's exact relationship to Judaism? Well, um, some of the uh, Dutch radicals argued that Christianity began in Alexandria among the allegorizing Jews to the left of Philo, that even in Philo you find shocking parallels to New Testament Christology, that the Logos through whom the world was made was the heavenly high priest and the firstborn son of God, the heavenly Adam, etc. What, is this just coincidence? I mean, it's the same categories, the same concepts as in the Christianity of the epistles and the Gospel of John. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, the so it could simply have originated from there. Uh, it's it's uh, not unlikely, and and if it's not true, you got some tall explaining to do about why they're so darn similar. So it could have started with Alexandrian Judaism and then spread into uh, Palestine. There's a lot of travel between the two. That sure wouldn't be. Uh, a problem. Now, it, it might be that there was a historical Jesus, but he had nothing to do with such notions until allegorizing Jewish Christians, quote-unquote, as, such as Apollos is supposed to have been, came in and began teaching these these things. And some Jesus followers, uh, it would be like uh, what Burton Mack says, the Christ cults versus the Jesus movements. They could have uh, fused together um, uh, the late great... Um, uh, G.A. Wells thought that in, uh, toward the end of his life, not a pure mythicist any longer. Um, let's see, but it could be that Jesus was, given the, the incredible syncretism of the time, and don't listen to the apologists and they try to say, oh no, they were zealous for keeping any sort of pagan ideas out of Christianity. Well, some were, like the Maccabees, a revitalization movement, but you only go to that trouble because there's a mass turning of Jews from the traditional religion to Hellenistic ways, right? I mean, how can you ignore that? So it could well be, I mean, like in, in first and second and Maccabee, we read about loads of Jews converting to Dionysus worship. In the Old Testament, we read about Jerusalem Jews uh, ritually mourning for uh, for Tammuz, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, they would certainly have known about Osiris and the the uh, the Eucharist. Uh, this is my body. This is my blood. Well, what is? Well, this. This uh, bread is my body, this wine is my blood. That's just like the sacraments of Osiris and Dionysus, whom the Hellenistic Egyptians identified in the same way. So it would have taken nothing uh, for a Jesus simply to be another version of the same or another name for the same character, which many Jews had long worshipped, right, for centuries. Uh, so there's just no problem there. And uh, one one uh, difficulty in in the issue is that people are still at bottom thinking, how would rabbinic Judaism have been able to make room for some Hellenistic salvation cult? Uh, big problem, Judaism at the time was not orthodox rabbinic Judaism as we know it. There were loads of different types of Judaism. Uh, and so uh, you, you just have to uh, assume that it was... Uh, 
I mean, infer that that it was uh, one of these groups, the Nazareans, the Masbothians, uh, and so on and so on, uh, who perpetuated the popular polytheistic religion, including the dying and rising god myth, which was part and parcel of the ancient sacred king myth. I deal with this in various places, uh, but I will have a good discussion of it in my forthcoming book, Bart Ehrman Interpreted. So uh, it's it's hard to tell uh, how it would have wound up as a kind of semi-Judaized uh, faith, but the reason it's hard to tell is not a paucity of evidence, uh, but rather an embarrassment of riches. There are too many possible ways it could have happened, none of them implausible or improbable, unless you're an axe-grinding dogmatist who just can't stand that the, the possibility that those things are true. Uh, yeah, okay, well, uh, I think that's going to be it for... Uh, for the Bible Geek for today. I hope to be with you again soon and uh, keep those cards, letters, and if possible, donations coming in, folks. And I'll uh, be back before you know it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.